What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from NDHackers.com, and you're listening to the Indie Hackers podcast. More people than ever are building cool stuff online and making a ton of money in the process. And on this show, I interview these indie hackers to learn about the ideas, the strategies, and the opportunities they're taking advantage of so the rest of us can do the same. If you've been listening to the show and enjoying it, do me a quick favor, leave a rating for us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find the show, and it makes me a happy podcaster. Today, I'm talking to Tyler King, the creator of Less Annoying CRM. How's it going, Tyler? Good, how are you? Excellent. It's good to have you back on the show. You were here last October in episode number 128. I recommend people go check that one out. You talked about how you spent 10 years building your SaaS product, Less Annoying CRM, which, as people can probably guess from the name, is a less annoying uh, <laughs> CRM tool. And you got to the point where you had 22,000 paying customers. Uh, you hit $2.6 million in annual recurring revenue. What are you up to nowadays? We are just almost at 3 million ARR. So uh, we're, we're trying to hit that. If not for this uh, pandemic, we'd be there by now. But we had a couple rough months, but things kind of bounced back around uh, the summer. Yeah, that's a pretty cool progress milestone to report regardless. And I think what I like about your company in particular is that you're sort of building it to last. You know, you're not like trying to flip it. You're not trying to sell it. You're not trying to like figure out the new thing to work on. You're thinking about how uh, you can still be here doing kind of the same thing in the next 20 or 30 years. And you have a whole podcast devoted to that called Startup to Last that we're kind of going to talk about later on. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we're, we're getting like 10 to 15% growth year over year, which if you're trying to exit in two years is pretty pathetic. And if you're like, we're going to be here 30 years from now, you're like, okay, that compounding yeah. can really add up over that time span. <laughs> so if people want to hear a story, I recommend they go check out that episode. Today, we're going to talk about something completely different, which is this topic that you brought up to me uh, a few times in recent weeks, which is bundling. And I think kind of the trigger for this was the Slack acquisition by Salesforce. So uh, first of all, let's start there. What do you think about Slack getting bought by Salesforce? Yeah, it's huge in SaaS because Slack was arguably the biggest success of the most recent generation. And them getting acquired is sort of viewed as a failure. I mean, it's obviously a financial success. It was $27 billion. But everyone's saying the reason they had to sell is because they couldn't cut it as a standalone company. Yeah, I've seen a lot of negative press that's basically uh, Slack had to sell because of the pressure from Microsoft Teams. You know, Microsoft's got this Teams product. It's competitive. A lot of people are using it. I talked to my mom. She doesn't know what Slack is, but she's on Microsoft Teams at her company uh, using that every day. And she doesn't like it, but she's using it. And that's kind of what matters in terms of revenue. And, uh, you know, I think from my perspective, people underestimate the degree to which Slack could have grown. I think Microsoft Teams was a very competitive product, but Microsoft was kind of selling this into like, kind of like old, mature companies. And Slack was selling to startups. And it's really easy to underestimate how quickly startups can grow over time. But like, if you're selling to Lyft in 2014, then come 2020, like that's a huge customer that you suddenly have that you know a few years ago was like a very tiny customer. And it seems like whenever I talk to tiny startups, like they're not using Microsoft Teams, they're using Slack, which I think could explain why Salesforce is willing to pay so much money for it. But it is a little bit disheartening to see Slack sort of throw in the towel and join Salesforce rather than stay independent and kind of be you know their own standalone tool. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, especially given that I think most people who have used both Slack and Microsoft Teams prefer Slack. So the idea that the better product and what by all rights is a huge company still kind of failed in a sense is concerning, I think. Yeah. That said, I have some friends at Slack and they are very happy <laughs> yeah. with their recent uh, boost in their stock price. But let's talk about bundling. What does this have to do with uh, this idea of SaaS bundling that you brought up to me? Yeah. I'll be curious to see what Salesforce does with Slack. Maybe bundling is related to it on that end. But the reason it's really relevant to me is why did Slack, quote unquote, lose to Teams? 
It's because nobody bought Teams. Nobody bought Microsoft Teams. They bought Microsoft or Office 365, whatever it's called, and Teams came with it. And by virtue of it being in this bundle, even though it's an inferior product, it kind of beat Slack in terms of usage and adoption, which in a sense, it's just like classic, you know, Microsoft's a monopoly and used its power. But I think it's a little more interesting because it's not, it's happening across the industry. Right. And so the whole idea of bundling is you get this advantage by, even if you know, some of your software is crappy, you can bundle in that crappy software with better software that people are already buying. And now you've sold two pieces of software and people will probably just use both of them. And so it's kind of a way to win without having to make the best possible software. Yeah, like Slack killed HipChat. If HipChat had been built into Google Workspace or G Suite is what it used to be called, HipChat probably would be doing really well right now. Right. It's, not, it's like less about the product differentiation and more about distribution at that point. Okay, so what are some other examples of bundles? There's Office 365. And Microsoft has been very good at bundling. I mean, they, got, they had that old antitrust case in the late 90s, basically, because <laughs> they were bundling Internet Explorer with uh, their operating system, which made it impossible for other competing browsers to sort of compete. Uh, who else is bundling that people listening might recognize? Yeah, so one of the originals was when Adobe put out Creative Cloud. They had all these standalone products, Photoshop, Illustrator, whatever, that you could buy individually. And then they said, no, pay us 50 bucks a month or whatever it is, and you get all of them. You don't have to choose which product you want. I think that's a really classic one. And then Google Workspace is basically Google's version of Office 365. Yeah, it's kind of copy-pasted Microsoft's Office strategy and put it on the web. Yeah. I have Google Workspace and I have Adobe Creative Cloud. I don't have Office. I haven't opened a Word document in probably <laughs> 10 years. <laughs> uh, when people send them to me, I just send them back. I use it just for Excel, but uh, everyone at my company has at least both Google and Microsoft, and a lot of us have Adobe as well. Right. And the thing about all these examples is that they're all kind of like older examples. Like these are very established companies. If you're an indie hacker, like you're probably not going to build a Google Docs competitor. <laughs> you're probably not going to build a Photoshop competitor. Like you need a huge team, a lot of money. Let's talk about why bundling matters for indie hackers. Are there any examples of like smaller, more recent companies that are like able to successfully use this bundling strategy to actually get ahead? Yeah, so if, if we're talking about the ones who have already done it, at this point, they're bigger, but they're more like startups than you know Microsoft or Google. Dropbox, I think, is doing a similar parallel where they started with just files, but then they acquired, I forget what it was called, but it turned into Dropbox Paper. They just released a password management tool. They acquired HelloSign to do document, like e-signatures. And so now if you subscribe to Dropbox, you think of it as a file storage company, but you also get all these other things, so you don't have to subscribe to a different note-taking or a different e-signature app. I was also listening to um, Rahul, the, the founder of Superhuman, and he was talking about like why he decided to build basically a competitor to Gmail. And he was talking about all these different add-ons and extensions that people have installed into their browser to kind of make Gmail more powerful. So he had built one of these 10 years ago called Reportive, where you open an email and it would show you, like, here's the person this email is from. And then there was a clone called Sidekick that did kind of the same thing, to kind of help you figure out things. There's Streak. I interviewed the founder of Streak. It's kind of a CRM that lives inside your Gmail inbox. There's a million other tools that live inside your Gmail inbox. And ultimately, they just like slow down Gmail and make it like this really very convoluted, difficult to understand, and just like buggy, slow product. And his kind of idea was superhuman. It's like, what if we just rebuilt this experience from the ground up? Google is very slow at you know, improving Gmail. We'll just bundle all of the stuff into our native email product. So you go to superhuman, and it's got kind of like a ton of these features that like previously you needed to combine like 10 or 15 different features into one. And, you know, Supreme is obviously doing pretty well. They've got like a wait list of 200, 300,000 people. People are paying like 30 bucks a month. 
Uh, you can do the math on how much money they stand to make if they can convert the people off their wait list into actual paying customers. I'm a user. Are you? Yeah, you superhuman too. What do you think about it? Is it as good as advertised for you? No, I think it's better than anything else. And that's worth $30 a month to me. But it's not like changing the way I use email. It's just like <laughs> a little bit faster, which I like. They're very good at uh, marketing, in particular Rahul. I mean, the way they describe it is it's the fastest email experience ever built. I think you're right. I think it, maybe that's true. But it's also like not that fast. I still feel like I'm checking my email. There's a lot of analogies to like Superhuman being like a game. Like they're doing a lot of research on video mm-hmm. games to figure out like how, how people play video games and like what makes you, what gives you all the little dopamine hits when you're playing and what makes it fun. And like email is yet to hit the point where like it's fun for me. <laughs> I pretty much run from it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's still email. <laughs> exactly. And I, I don't know how you get over this problem where like at the end of the day, you still have to, you still have to read each individual email and like respond to it and act on it. You know, and yeah. having really nice keyboard shortcuts is fine, but like, what's gonna like, what's the magic that's gonna get you out of having to do that actual process of making sure this is not an important email and, and you know, archiving it or responding to it? Like, I don't, I don't see an innovation that's gonna really help with that. Yeah, I tried out Hey, where they try to just make it so you don't see the email in the first place, and I was like, I'm missing a whole lot of email here. So right. I like, okay, I, I still need to read every email. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I, I built a product that was kind of in the space when I was uh, in college. Uh, it was called Cipher. And kind of the original idea was my co-founders are both PhD students at MIT and they were doing the software that was AI based that was trying to predict like, you know, which emails you want to read and which emails you don't. And like the problem is you just can't trust it. And yeah. Google's done the same thing. Like they had something to you with like, oh, this is important and this is not. And you just end up reading both boxes. And if you let one go without looking at it for too long, you just look and you see a bunch of important emails in there that you missed. So ultimately, uh, never really been blown away by any of these products. But the point is it works, right? Superhuman has marketed itself as being like the better product. They bundled all these different features into one, and now people want to use it rather than using Gmail and like using you know fifteen different add-ons to try to get the functionality that they want. Earlier, you said like why should indie hackers care about bundling? And we kind of talked about one: it's an opportunity that anyone starting a company might consider should they bundle. But I see two other reasons to care about it. One is if you know that bigger companies, like a co- we mentioned, Dropbox Front is doing this right now. There are a bunch of different companies that are launching multiple products. A part of me thinks, should you stay away from this? If you're an indie hacker, if you see a type of product that's starting to be an add-on to a a core product rather than its own standalone thing, does that indicate a problem? The other side of me, though, thinks it's an opportunity. If everyone's building appointment scheduling into their product, almost all of these are acquisitions. Right. Dropbox did not build four different products. They built one and they acquired three others. Front is adding appointment scheduling. They acquired that company. Is this potentially an exit path? I mean, I, I personally am not interested in exiting, but if you are, being a part of a bigger bundle might be one way to do that. I like this point that like maybe this is what you avoid. You see these companies being bundled. Don't build that because you're now competing with this uh, behemoth. But also, like you know, if you're trying to figure out how to exit and you're looking at who's exiting today, like you're probably already too late. You know, by the time you build that SaaS, you know, you get it in customers' hands. You grow to the point where it's meaningful. We're like three, four, five years in the future, and like maybe you know, bigger companies aren't buying things like paper or slack anymore like we're on to the next like evolution and like you're building for yesterday's world so that's kind of another reason like not to do whatever you see being bundled but i I can think of a counter argument which is that often when companies get bought by bigger companies like slack gets bought by salesforce uh bigger companies are just poor stewards of that software and that software degrades and you know three or four years from now like maybe no one's on slack anymore because it's been salesforceified and like that's sometimes like a really good gap where you can basically come in and build something to replace it. Like I bet you people are already hard at work 
on Slack clones and they're like playing up the news. You know, Slack's gonna go to hell. It's not gonna be the same Slack. It's gonna get you know all super slow and bloated like Salesforce. Like use our new thing. And I bet you some people are probably jumping ship because of that. Yeah, absolutely. And we said earlier Slack lost to Teams. Slack only lost because they're on the venture capital roller coaster. If they were an indie hacker company, a bootstrapped company, I'm sure they'd be perfectly happy with their you know hundreds of millions in revenue or whatever they're making. So it's very possible that it creates enough oxygen for a smaller company to come around, but there probably won't be another Slack, is my guess. Like the product's commoditized at this point. So here's a crazy idea. Do you think indie hackers who are working on like kind of individual products or businesses could benefit by joining forces into their own kind of bundles? Like let's say, you know, you're somebody and you've got a note-taking app and you're somebody else, you've got like a task management app or something. Do you think, you know, the two of you and maybe like a, a few other indie hackers could come together and say, we're going to have like a bundle for all of our software, you know, get all of us together for like, you mm-hmm. know, some cheaper price. And that way, you know, maybe it's easier for you to sell what you're doing, you know, together with other people than it is by yourself. And I think the mechanics of this, are, it's a good deal if you turn out to be kind of a below average player. Like if you bundle yourself with four or five other companies <laughs> and like it turns out like by your, on your own, like you would have done worse than them. Like you probably want to be bundled together because you get kind of like the rising tide lifts, lifts all boats if you're in that particular tide. It's a bad deal if you're the, the winner. Like if you're going to do better than everybody else, you probably don't want to be bundled with them and bring down your prices as a result because you could have done well on your own. But I think for startups, maybe that math is a little bit skewed because most companies are probably below average. It's not like five out of 10 are below average. It's like eight or nine out of 10 are below average because most companies just fail. And so if that's the case, like, is there an argument to be made that almost everybody should be you know, bundling together with other companies because there's so much uncertainty in the beginning? And then if you know, it turns out that you are one of the winners and your company is growing much faster than everybody else's, you unbundle and you, you, know, you go off on your own. Yeah, and it's a form of diversification. I, I hadn't thought of that before, but that makes total sense. Most, if you win, if you're the top tier in the bundle, you're probably fine with half as good of an outcome as you would have gotten. You're still rich and happy. So probably it's worth the risk. That's a really interesting approach to take, I think. So there's a company in my YC batch way back in the day called Humble Bundle. I did YC in January 2011. I think they started maybe like six or seven months before that. And what they did was indie game bundles. So they kind of rode this trend, this wave of indie developers making their own video games. And what they would do is bundle together like five or six indie video games at the same time. And then if you wanted to play one of these games, you could buy the whole bundle for just like one price. And they also did like pay what you want. So you could pay $0 or something. You could pay like $10. And then you could allocate, you know, I want this percentage of my payment to go to the indie game devs, this percentage to go to charity, you know, and this percentage to go to Humble Bundle. And they absolutely crushed it. I think they were making like millions of dollars from these sales. And eventually they got by IGN, which is this huge media company in the game space in 2017. And I think they're kind of a cool example of like what you can do as an indie hacker with bundling. Like they weren't actually, you know, one of the companies being bundled. They were kind of like this third party that bundled other companies together, which I think is cool because it gave them sort of a neutral kind of stewardship position. And they also like didn't have to make any video games. They just kind of curated like the best of the best, which anybody could just like do today. It's pretty easy to get started. And then there's a huge marketing advantage in the bundle because instead of just promoting one company or two companies, they'd promote five or six video games at the same time all of those creators would kind of jump in on the promotion. And you get the scenario where when everybody's talking about something, like suddenly that's news. And then other outlets pick it up and it becomes much bigger than it would have been if everybody was sort of promoting their games on their own. So it kind of made sense for everybody involved to be involved with this bundle. You touched on something that I think is an important part of why bundling 
works. Like part of it is the monopoly power thing if you're a big company, but it even works in smaller examples like that for a lot of reasons. But it has a powerful impact on how people view products. And one of which is I think humans don't like too much choice. And SaaS is just, there are an overwhelming number of things to choose right now. I have customers tell me all the time, they're like, okay, I chose you for CRM. I'm good. Can you please pick my email marketer, my calendar? Can you pick all of these for me? Because I don't want to have to go through this process 20 different times to pick all of my SaaS products. And it's funny too, when people are uh, building their products and they're so worried about the competition and losing uh, their customers to like up and coming competitors. And it's like, you know how small a percentage of your customers are like actively looking to switch to some competitive product? Like usually once people are like in your app, assuming it doesn't suck and it's like, it's good, they're happy and they're not spending, you know, all their time thinking about all these different choices they can make. You know, they're not doing like a giant matrix of every single option of CRM they could use and like figuring out like what they're going to do. Like some people do that, but like the vast majority would prefer to just like start using something and then just keep using it. I mean, this is why like, yeah, we have Notion today and we had Google Docs before that, but like people are still sending around like office documents. They're used to it and they're not going to switch. Absolutely. And especially if you're on the cutting edge of something, probably I think you're differentiated in any number of ways. But if we're talking about CRM or appointment scheduling or note taking, kind of all these products are roughly the same. And I feel bad saying that because I build a CRM, but like the reality is we don't have any features that every other <laughs> CRM doesn't have, you know? Yeah. So let's talk about your product, Less Annoying CRM. Because you've mentioned to me that you're thinking about doing some bundling with your own indie hacker SaaS product. How's that going to work? What are you thinking about bundling? Yeah, my thinking on this has shifted a little recently because I've always wanted to bundle. The reason being, I don't want to move up market. I don't want to sell to enterprises. So how do you provide more value to small businesses when they want a simple product? It's not by continuing to add features to the product you have, right? That, that would be counterproductive. So I've always kind of known it's by solving more problems for those same people. In the past, I thought of it more like it's just one big, like CRM does everything. And with this bundling world, I'm starting to think maybe it makes more sense to basically position them as a bunch of separate products, even if it's all still in one app, but say, you know how you have 20 tabs open just to run your business? What if I could get it down to 10 for you? That's kind of what I'm thinking of makes sense for the position. I like the idea of uh, sort of bundling within one company because like you're not thinking about, I mean, maybe you are, you're thinking about like buying other companies and having them sort of fill out this feature set or is it like developing it all in-house? You're going to add new features and then create new bundle, like one big bundle where you, you know, are not just a CRM, but your other things too. Yeah, I think buying probably makes a lot of sense. That's not in my DNA. I'd get everything wrong. I don't want to have a different code base to deal with and all that. But <laughs> I also think if you buy, what you end up with is a bunch of different products that probably barely talk to each other. If you build, what I want, you've mentioned Notion. Notion is the dream because it's one thing that replaces Trello, Airtable, in my case, Dropbox Paper. It replaces a bunch of things, but it's one tool. Asana. Asana, yes. If Notion had acquired a spreadsheet tool and acquired a note tool and so on, it would be fundamentally different from what it is. I know this is kind of against what I just said. I just said, like, position it as a bunch of different products. Right. But I almost think the, the user experience should be the opposite of that. It should be like, here's one thing that does everything. It's interesting to like dichotomy because when I think about Notion, like I'm a huge Notion advocate. I'm constantly trying to get people onto Notion. Like our little notes for this podcast are in Notion. I want to try to convince people to use Notion. They're like, what is it? Like it's too many things. Like the website's confused. Like, they don't know why to use it. And I'm like, no, no, no. It's this cool document thing that's also a spreadsheet that's also a task. And they're just like, this doesn't make any sense. Um, and so I think 
the way that they've bundled by not having these distinct things actually makes their value prop like very confusing. But the experience, I think, as you're hinting at, is actually really good. And once you sort of grok it and you get into it and you see that it's not like all these different products stitched together haphazardly, but it's like done in like a very natural way where it makes a lot of sense, then it's really good. So probably like retention is good, but like user acquisition and conversion is like tough <laughs> because people have no idea what it is that you're building. I did this multiple times. I signed up for Notion because everyone talks about it and I tried to figure it out and I was just like, I can't wrap my head around this. And then <laughs> just like a couple months ago, I finally got into it and now I'm, I'm converted. I, I love it. <laughs> what do you think clicked for you? It's cheap enough that even if I only use it for one simple thing, it's still worth it. So I just moved the company wiki into it. And then as soon as I had that in there, I was like, oh, well, maybe I'll tack on my meeting notes and maybe I'll tack on this other thing. And, and it eventually completely took over Trello, Dropbox paper and a handful of other things for us. Like maybe it's kind of a wider trend of like what bundling is good for. Because I think there's this drive when you're doing kind of productivity work, like you're drafting posts or something, you're taking notes, you're checking your tasks and your calendar, where you just kind of like you're kind of in the same headspace when you're doing any of that stuff. And you just really want it to be in one place. So before I was using Notion, I was using like Asana to track my tasks, but then some of them were in like my GitHub issues, and then I have like my Google Calendar, and my inbox, and Superhuman, and like I'm using Google Docs to take notes, and it's like a million different things, and like they all need to kind of reference each other. You know, I might like take notes on like here's my strategy for March, but then I have tasks associated with that, and those are in Asana, so it's like I'm awkwardly linking from one to the other. So like any productivity tool that can seamlessly bundle all of these different things together is going to have a huge advantage because then you don't have to go from place to place. Whereas like maybe, you know, I don't need Twitter to be bundled with like Facebook or something. You know, like I'm cool with my social networking tools living in different places and there's no real advantage to bundling those in that way. Although that's not true. I would like to get like all my messages in one place instead of having to check 10 different places. A hundred percent. Because Notion, the note taking experience in Notion, in my opinion, is just awful. Like the actual text editor is so much worse than Dropbox paper. The Kanban board is certainly worse than Trello, but I mean, maybe comparable. The table's worse than Airtable. Honestly, just the fact that you can click on any of them from the sidebar to get from like from a, a table to a Kanban board to a note. Yeah, that's huge. I, I almost wonder if there's an opportunity to bundle products you don't make. Like, could you make a, like a Chrome plugin that basically builds a Notion sidebar, but for other products to combine them together? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, it might be a little kludgy, because I think one of the things I like about Notion is that not only can you click all these things in the sidebar, but like you can put one in the other. Like you could take notes, and then inside your notes, you can put like a table that's basically an air table. And then below that, you can put like a Kanban board if you want to. And it's just like seamless. And then put your task list below that. Like I'll work with like, I've worked with some VAs where I'm like, okay, I need my VA to do like these particular tasks, you know, and I need to also explain the tasks. And previously, it's like, oh, how do I do that in one place? But now it's like I can like write an explanation of the tasks in one doc, then like put the task list where she can then check them off, and I'll get little notifications that they're checked off, and then like send that whole page to her, and it's all like one thing. So if you could figure out a way to like somehow <laughs> combine these other tools like that seamlessly, <laughs> that's a huge engineering challenge. But like, does it work with anything besides productivity tools? Like, I guess games. Games seem to be bundled. Like you've got like the Xbox store or whatever, you've got like the PlayStation store, you've got Steam, Humble Bundle. You know, people who play games want to go to like one place, ideally, to access all of their games and talk to their friends who are playing these games. There's productivity tools. I can't think of anything else that comes to mind like off the top of my head where bundling seems like, you know, people really want to be in one place to do like all these different things. Yeah, every once in a while you see one of these products that is effectively like a fork of Chromium and it's just a browser that is better at keeping you logged into your... It's almost like every website is a little app experience and it's kind of like its own 
operating system, basically. That's maybe a version of a third party bundling a bunch of products they don't control. But yeah, it, I don't think there's a huge amount of opportunity there in different spaces, I don't think. Well, let's talk about um, unbundling then. So unbundling is this recently popular discussion topic. It's kind of popularized by Greg Eisenberg, who got it from, I forget who wrote about this. It's like a CEO of some big company. But they talk about like this constant cycle of bundling and unbundling. So you know, Notion is kind of a bundler. They're figuring out how to like kill all these other products and put them all into one product. But like people are probably going to unbundle Notion once they see like very specific use cases for Notion. They'll start like building you know very like niche apps that are much better at that. And there are other bigger properties and websites that people have been unbundling for ages. So the the most obvious one is Craigslist. Craigslist is this you know god awful hideous collection of a bunch of different you know <laughs> buy tools and rent your apartment out and meet you know someone to date all in this one website. People have just like completely verticalized Craigslist, Craigslist and created startups for pretty much everything that it does. And unbundling something doesn't mean that thing dies. Like Craigslist is still going strong, but it does give you an opportunity and ideas of like you're a founder, you know, what could I build? You know, I see like in this one corner of Hacker News, people are talking about this particular topic. Like maybe I could build a website for that. Like that's indie hackers in a nutshell. It's just an unbundling of one part of Hacker News. Uh, people have been talking a lot about unbundling Reddit recently. Reddit's kind of this sloppy collection you know, millions probably of different subreddits and different communities, and a lot of them are thriving. But like, is it really true that the best format for every single one of these communities is like this very stereotypical like subreddit structure? Probably not. And if you figure out like what makes that community tick, you can go in and unbundle it and make your own website for one of those verticals. So Greg's been doing that a lot. What do you think about unbundling? Is that a good idea? Do you see any platforms that are ripe for unbundling if you're an indie hacker trying to figure out, you know, what kind of business you can build? I think it's a great idea especially for an indie hacker, because like what I referenced earlier, an outcome for us that's acceptable can be much, much smaller than for someone else. So the opportunity for Slack maybe wasn't big enough, but for an indie hacker, it probably is. I think the classic unbundling opportunity in B2B, almost everything you named was B2C. In B2B, it's Excel, right? It's what are companies doing in Excel and how can we pull that out and make it a standalone product that, yeah, it's not as powerful as Excel. It can't do all of those things, but it can do this one specific workflow really well. Now that's not a new idea that's been out there for a long time, but I think that's kind of the classic. Yeah, I like that one. I think, and that one's kind of hard too, because you can't just look at Excel, the tool itself, and tell how it can be unbundled. Like you can go to Reddit, you can see, okay, this subreddit should be unbundled, that subreddit's fine, this subreddit should be unbundled, et cetera. But if you go to Excel, like, nothing in the tool itself tells you how people are using it. But if you go the customer development route, you can kind of go into these companies, you can figure out how they're using Excel, and you can ideally see some patterns and then figure out like what you need to unbundle. And I think, you know, you mentioned this is kind of the classic one, like a lot of this has already been done. Like a CRM tool, for example, is a special purpose tool that people were probably using Excel to do. You know, you track all your customers in Excel, you've got all these spreadsheets set up, and then, you know, somebody deletes one sheet or changes one formula and the whole thing's ruined. It wouldn't be much better if you had like a CRM tool that was built from the ground up to kind of let you do this and it was you know less touchy and less hacky than an Excel spreadsheet. Yeah, absolutely. Another version of this that I find interesting, I'm not sure if you'd consider this unbundling, but it's basically uh, swimming in the wake of a bigger acquisition. So we were just saying Slack got acquired. Probably a lot of companies are now saying we're going to be the next Slack. One of the best like bootstrapped success stories in the last five years is Tuple, in my opinion. Like, I'm not sure they did this intentionally, but you could. Like, what happened with Tuple? There was a company called Screen Hero that made pair programming software for developers. It hit product market fit. Like, it was doing well. Slack acquires it, but they didn't care about pair programming. They just acquired it for video chatting and stuff like that. As soon as that acquisition happened, you can say, well, 
that creates oxygen for someone else. And Tuple just did this. Tuple's like, we're just going to make what Screen Hero was, but Screen Hero is gone. And the, the, the opportunity is proven. All the market risk was de-risked for them. I bet there are other opportunities like that to effectively, as soon as a bigger company bundles something, take that as an opportunity to immediately unbundle it. Yeah, just jump in and get all the people who don't want the bundled version. And especially if it's like a bigger company that people like hate. Like if Facebook buys something, <laughs> guess how many people are no longer going to use that thing because they hate Facebook? Probably a lot. And if you can build like a better version, there's also like a good PR opportunity there too, where you can like position yourself as like, we're the anti-Facebook and we hate Facebook. And anyone who agrees with you will use your thing over Facebook. Or I'm sure the same thing is true with Salesforce. Probably a lot of people who just, for whatever reason, would refuse to use any Salesforce product and are going to hop ship off Slack. Uh, I talked to these guys from a product called Honey Badger on Indie Hackers a while ago, and they also did the same thing. Like There was this other product called Hoptoad. It was sort of error tracking for your Ruby applications, and I used it back in the day. A lot of people used it back in the day. I think the founders just kind of sold it, and it got like sold a few times. It got like rebranded to like Airbreak somewhere during this, and like eventually it just started to kind of suck. And everyone's like, "What happened to this tool that we loved? Like it, it's just been like bundled into these bigger products that have not really, you know, done a good job of stewardship." And the Honey Badger guys, like their whole pitch early on was just like emailing disgruntled Hoptoad customers or Airbrake customers and saying, like, you know, we're gonna rebuild this. We're not really gonna change very much. We're just gonna make it good. And you know, I think it's probably pretty reliable that a lot of these companies that get bundled just lose their quality and then they suck. So if you're an indie hacker, that's like you could kind of just keep your ear to the ground. You know, whose product is slipping in quality? What is a product that like lots of people use and pay for, but they're complaining about it? Or like who just recently got bought or acquired by like some very old, slow-moving company that's probably not going to do a good job? And the perfect recipe is not just they won't do a good job, but they didn't buy it to run that product. They bought it to incorporate the technology into their own or an aqua hire or something like that. Because then it's not a matter of quality. They're just going to shut the product down entirely. You know that that's the playbook of these big companies. Right. So think about some other things that are ripe for unbundling. In the same vein as Excel, or it's kind of like this you know, one-purpose tool, but you can use it for a million different reasons. I think website builders have, have kind of gone down the same route, where like, there's obviously, like, there might as well be infinite different reasons why you would use a website builder, like Squarespace, or Wix, or Weebly, or Webflow, or any of these. But they're all very general purpose. They let you build pretty much any kind of website you could imagine. But it turns out there are some very specific types of websites that a lot of people want to build. And if you can identify those, you can make a product just for building those specific kinds of websites. And I think, not intentionally, but like AJ, the creative card, did this, where he's just like, I'm going to make a website builder, but it's only for very simple kind of one-page websites. And it turns out like a huge percentage of the websites that people want to build on the internet are these very simple one-page websites. And so like he gets like a huge portion of that market kind of unbundling these very general-purpose website builders. Or with um, Andy Hackers, like right now we're kind of building this mailing list product where you can kind of run a mailing list on Indie Hackers, like your own little Substack mailing list, except unlike Substack, we'll let you sort of, we'll help with distribution. We'll try to put you in front of the Indie Hackers audience. And like one of the things we need to do for that is like give you a landing page for your mailing list. And I bet you there's like a million people out there right now who want like a really good landing page for their Substack mailing list or maybe for their podcast or something. So like if you can kind of unbundle these bigger website builders and say, we're just going to handle this like one very specific use case, maybe there's like a way to carve out a niche like that, probably a million different niches for Indie Hackers who are trying to figure out, you know, what they can do in that space. Yeah, so the pattern we're seeing here is for, if you want to unbundle, it has to be a general purpose product that's used for a lot of different things and where the market is so big that even if you only take 1% of it, it's still a good outcome. I mean, I think with that framework, you can narrow it down 
pretty well. That as soon as you started talking, I was like, well, CRM has to fit in here. People buy Salesforce, they do a million different things with it. I would argue application, uh, applicant tracking ATS systems, which is like a recruiting tool, that's basically unbundling a CRM. You could use a CRM to manage your recruiting process, but now they make these other products that are specifically for hiring. I bet there are a million other unbundling CRM, project management. Yeah, anything with a huge market and that's used in a lot of different ways is probably ripe for this. What do you think about education? So when I think about indie hacker businesses, one of the ways that people get started sort of the most easily is by educating. It's just like one of the easiest ways to start because you don't really need very much to educate. You just need to know something that other people want to know, and then you got to start putting out content that teaches people. And that can be courses, books, it can be tweets, it can be a newsletter, it can be interviews, it can be anything, a podcast. Maybe in a way like educational businesses are unbundling college. So you, you know, you go to college, you get like a whole bunch of different things. You get like these social connections, you get kind of a, a piece of paper that says that you know this thing and people should hire you. You get, you know, allegedly an education <laughs> that's going to help you do better in the workforce. Maybe you could unbundle college to some degree where you, you look at, okay, what is college providing? Like, you know, there are a lot of people who really struggle with the social experience and they don't have very many friends, especially as like sort of the workforce modernizes and we all sort of move around for work. It's harder to find connections. Like I'm going to unbundle the social experience part of college and create like some sort of program where like, you know, you just spend a lot of time <laughs> with a group of people who are somewhat similar to you and similar in age and you make good friends. Or maybe you unbundle like the educational part where it's like, we're just going to teach you like, you know, just like the raw computer science stuff. And that's all we're going to teach you. And you don't need to go to college. You don't need to pay, pay like $40,000 a year and go into crazy debt. Like we're just going to be 100% of what you need here. And that's it. The rest of college you don't even need. Well, I love that because college, you think of it as an educational institution, but depending on what school you go to, it might be 30% research and 20% sports or something like that. You can definitely strip that out. I, I had a friend who was a, he got a PhD in math and he's like, it's ridiculous. I'm at this world-class institution with all of this money to do math research. You're literally just, you need a pencil and a notepad. Like you don't need any other equipment. So why am I giving, you know, 50% of my grant money to the university so that they can buy me a notebook. <laughs> to subsidize all this other stuff that's going on, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting. Could you unbundle academia? You've got all these different scientists, all these different researchers working kind of under the same umbrella, but they're doing very different things. Some require like much more funding or less funding. I'm sure somebody's already doing this. There's like lots of institutions that have already like, you know, focused on one particular thing. And then in the private sector, you see companies like Google, which are spending a ton of money on research. And they're like actually peeling off a ton of researchers from universities to do things like AI research, et cetera. So, so maybe that's already happening. People already are unbundling academia. And maybe there's like more room if you're an indie hacker to try to look at you know, what's going on there and what doesn't necessarily need to be connected to the rest of academia. That's only sort of connected for traditional reasons, but like in terms of like the physics behind how it works, it'll be much better off on its own. And maybe that's better than it being part of a college where like, you know, a lot of the tuition money is funding not just the research, but also the football team and student dorms and other kind of irrelevant stuff. It makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, me too, but I also don't know what I'm talking about. I don't know anything about <laughs> academia. <laughs> so we're getting very uh, off topic here. Another thing you brought up that I think is really worth going into is this notion of subscription fatigue. Explain to me like what subscription fatigue is and why it's related to bundling. Yeah, subscription fatigue is the idea that, you know, 10, 15 years ago before everything was SaaS, you would buy a thing you'd get it, you'd own it, you'd have it for however long you need. Now, more and more things are becoming a monthly subscription and a lot of things are unbundling, like cable turned into Netflix and Hulu and whatever else. And I think both as individual consumers and especially as businesses, you look at your credit card statement and you're like, I just have way too many subscriptions. 
this has a lot of problems. One, just the cognitive overhead of like having to keep track of this and is this thing worth it? From a business standpoint, it's a big problem to say, you know, we're only a 19-person company. We're about as small as businesses get. And every time we hire an employee, we forget to get them added to one of these subscriptions. I guarantee you. Whereas with Microsoft, as much, I don't really like any of their products, but it's great. They're in there. And if someone's like, I also need a digital whiteboarding tool, I'm like, I bet you already have that through Office 365. Just go find it, download it. We're already paying for it. It's much easier than like, well, let's get the credit card out and find one of these other tools. <laughs> yeah, it's very true. I was going to say, like, I don't know if, if I really experience subscription fatigue because at Indie Hackers, I got a ton of subscriptions, but I've never like I have too many subscriptions. But in part, that's because I use kind of like the Stripe issuing card. So I get like a text message every single time my card is charged. And I also get like a Slack chat and it says, this is the vendor that's charging your card on this date for how much. So it kind of feels like all my subscriptions are in one place. And if I didn't have that, like maybe I would be extremely fatigued by it. But I think, number one, not everybody uses that product. Number two, there's certain problems it doesn't solve. Like I lost my personal credit card a few months back and that was a nightmare because it's like, what is even like charging this card? And how am I going to figure out like all the different subscriptions that are on it? It's like 30 or 40 of them. And I have to kind of go one website at a time, log into that website. I basically had to like search my email for charges and try to figure out what was going on. And it took like literally like a month of just me looking at every charge in my bank account to try to figure out what I'm being charged for. There's probably some stuff that's like yearly subscriptions that I'm subscribed to that I don't even know about. So maybe there's an opportunity here to like, I don't know, like build some sort of like subscription roll-up tool. Does this already exist? This has to exist. I wonder if you had that, it would be so easy to then also turn that into like one of these kind of group bundle things we were talking about earlier. You could you could really grow that into an interesting product where any group of SaaS products could bundle themselves together through your billing system. That'd be really, really nice. Yeah, yeah, that would be cool. I just searched for it. I'm getting like charge B, simplify subscription management, charge B. Yeah, that's not what they do, I don't think. All those subscription tools are for the, they're for the SaaS company to manage their subscription. Right, not for the customer. Well, business idea for any indie hackers out there. It sounds incredibly difficult <laughs> to probably convince these companies to do this. Yeah, for sure. But maybe it's in their best interest because it's kind of a bundle for them. If they can like get some free marketing out of it, like, hey, you know, we've integrated with this new subscription management thing, you can maybe give them some users to some press. Like if I knew that like I had to choose a CRM and out of like the six options I had, only one of them was like on this subscription management tool that would let me sort of easily cancel my subscriptions all at once or change my card all at once, then I'd probably go with the one that's on there. Okay, so there is a tool for this and it's called iOS, right? Like is this part of the reason why people like buying an app? Mobile stuff. Yeah. I use Android, but it's the same thing. I kind of like have one credit card. I don't have to put in my credit card number once I'm paying for an app or something. And then I can easily just see like, here's all the apps that you're subscribed to from one place. And it's, it's super easy. On the topic of this subscription fatigue, I also want to say it pairs really nicely with the idea of things being commodified. Like I think these are two separate issues, but they work nicely together, which is to say, I'm not going to go out and use a worse, well, CRM. CRM is really important for a company that uses one. I'm not going to use a worse CRM but I might use a worse calendar scheduler. Not much worse, but like they're all kind of the same. So if one's bundled in, I can get rid of that subscription, partially to save money, but also just to save the, the fee. So subscription fatigue is not a problem if the product's differentiated and awesome. But in a world where there's just a million clones of the same thing, at that point I start right. to say, why am I paying separately for this? Yeah, it might be nice to have them all bundled together. I'm thinking about other things where I've had subscription fatigue recently, like Substack. I had this like this like frenzy, I don't know how else to describe it, right? <laughs> Subscribe to like, you know, 10, 15 different substacks in like a week. And this is a few months ago. 
And like maybe I was willing to do that because they were all on Substack. And it was just kind of one credit card. They're all bundled together. It's easy to sort of cancel and change it up. And maybe that's like to Substack's advantage that like, okay, you know, you could put your newsletter on some other, you know, framework. You could use Ghost, you could use MailChimp or whatever, but like people haven't put their credit card in yet. And since like Substack has bundled together all of these people's newsletters in one place, uh, it's just easier as a subscriber to subscribe to like a Substack newsletter than it is to subscribe to something else. But now I'm starting to get like kind of the fatigue where it's like, well, I've subscribed to so many of these things. I can't read enough of them. And I'm also subscribed to so many different like just SaaS tools. Like for indie hackers, if I go into, let's see what I'm paying for for indie hackers. Let's see what, what recent text messages I've gotten on my Stripe issuing card to see what I'm being billed for. Okay, so I got, as we discussed, Superhuman. I've got Notion. I've got my podcast editors, GitHub. Chartable, which hosts my podcast, and Transistor, which also does my podcast stuff. I've got Calendly for calendaring. I've got Google Cloud for hosting Firebase. I've got Render for hosting my website. I've got SparkPost and Postmark for sending transactional emails. I've got Descript for editing podcasts. I've got Adobe Creative Cloud for both Photoshop and <laughs> Adobe Audition. I've got Zoom. I've got Riverside. I've got like just a million subscriptions. What's the end game here? Do you think people are just going to keep subscribing to more and more stuff? I feel like, you know, for an indie company of my size, five, 10 years ago, I wouldn't have even half this many subscriptions. And like, these are all useful products and companies, but like something's got to give. This can't just keep going. Like 10 years from now, I can't just have a thousand subscriptions. I can't imagine that. And I mean, aside from the fatigue, they cost money. Yeah. I know people say, oh, well, if you use this product, you'll save 10 minutes a day and that adds up to whatever. But if that were literally true, you'd just go out and the more SaaS products you bought, the more money you'd make. And like, that's not really how it works. (laughs) Uh, Like there is a limit to how much you can actually utilize. You said it earlier, I think there's cycles, right? I think we've gone through a really long unbundling cycle over like SaaS has really only been a thing for the last 10 years. And most SaaS products have been standalone products that in a sense unbundled the previous generation of enterprise like Oracle or whatever type products. Right. This is one of the reasons why I think bundling is a trend that's coming up is that what you just described where you have a thousand subscriptions isn't viable, I don't think. Yeah, maybe 10 years from now, I won't be paying for any of this podcast stuff because Spotify will have bought all of it and just bundled it all up into to their sort of mega podcasting empire. And then maybe like all my hosting will sort of become like, you know, consolidated into the Google, which is already kind of happening. They're sort of bundling all the different hosting things. Just use Google Cloud or use Amazon or use Microsoft. So I think, I think you're spot on. I think the way we sort of avoid the subscription fatigue is because these companies end up bundling everything because we don't all want to have a thousand different bills and we have a limited amount of money in our bank accounts anyway. Yeah. And that's terrifying because the big tech companies already have enough power. Do we, do we really want only the only products we use are from Google or Microsoft or Apple. But I think there's hope of small businesses, indie hackers, bundling stuff as well. Or we talked about Notion, sorry to keep going back to that, but they're becoming a bigger company, but they did a lot with a very small team before they raised a whole lot of money. I think that's probably, if we look forward five, 10 years from now, after everything bundles, there's going to be a a counter response to unbundling again. And I think Notion might be a model of what, what that looks like. Take a bunch of different things, merge them all into one product. It's now differentiated. It's not a commodity anymore. And people will switch away from the, the big bundles, hopefully. Let's talk about the Andy Hackers podcast network, which is not really a bundle in the sense of what we're talking about. Or, or is it? Would you describe the Andy Hackers podcast network as a bundle? I think loosely. I, if you think of a bundle as like separate products grouping together for easier distribution... 
Uh, it's stretching the <laughs> definition a little bit, but yeah, I think so. It kind of is. I mean, like if you think about a traditional media company like the New York Times, like that's definitely a bundle. You've got a bunch of different journalists writing different columns, and you know maybe you only care about one or two of those columns, but once you go to the New York Times, you discover a whole bunch of different other things in the newspaper, and it's kind of bundled together, and kind of stronger together than they are separately. And the whole idea of the podcast network is it's not just the Indie Hackers podcast anymore, but it's your show, Startup to Last, plus four other great shows, and we're sort of combining forces into one podcast network. And they're like internal benefits and external benefits. So the internal benefits are pretty obvious. Like the six of us, uh, really like nine of us, because a few of the shows have two hosts, including yours, get together on a regular basis. We talk about our shows. We talk about kind of, you know, how do we make our shows better? How do we promote our shows? How do you sell sponsorships on a podcast? How do we kind of mutually help each other? And I think that's really great because typically people working in any particular field either don't collaborate or worse, they see each other as competitors and like none of this knowledge gets shared. But if you can kind of join forces together, then you like improve together much faster than everybody who has like their own podcast by themselves. Plus there are all these other theoretical benefits that we haven't really gotten yet where we could like, for example, kind of pool our resources and share resources. So like, you know, maybe we could all be on like one transistor account theoretically mm-hmm. and like save money on that. Or we could have like the same podcast editor who you know knows exactly how to edit all of our shows and we give them enough business to sort of be satisfied and like we don't all have to look for different podcast editors or you know we have the same advertisers or the same distribution channels like we can kind of join forces and then just focus on what makes our shows different and kind of have like you know one central entity handle kind of the shared resources across our shows so those are some of the internal benefits of the indie hackers bundle what if anything are the external benefits like if you're a listener is there any benefit to the fact that like our six shows are all part of the same network now yeah, I don't think they're as obvious as the ones you just said, but let me just throw some ideas out there. One is we, we've bounced around the idea before of like, what if all of the podcasts on the network picked kind of themes or topics? So let's take bundling. Let's say everybody's going to do a bundling episode now. Would that mm-hmm. be interesting for the listener to say, oh, I can, you know, I can follow along on these bigger trends that normally wouldn't be covered. The other thing I, this is probably a stupid idea, but I wonder if there were a single podcast stream that picked one of ours per week or something so that the Mm. listener could actually consume these different podcasts in an easier way. Whereas right now, even though we're all still, we're in a podcast network, they still have to subscribe to each of them separately. It doesn't really simplify the distribution for them at all. Yeah, that's the the problem. Like we don't control podcast distribution. We don't own a podcast player. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We could theoretically build one. I mean, like I I built a uh, sort of an RSS feed reader for Andy Hackers. So if you go to IndieHackers.com slash podcasts, it's just every 15 minutes pinging each of your RSS feeds and pulling in your latest episode if you have one. And like, what else is a podcast player besides just a list of shows <laughs> that you could play on? So like, what if there was like a very niche podcast player? You're an indie hacker, uh, but the only podcasts that you even listen to are indie hackers podcasts. What if we had like a podcast player for our show? And that was kind of the feed. Yeah. I mean, would anyone use that Probably not with just that, but you could imagine building it out more, right? Could Maybe. there be more discussions because you're using this app or something like that? Yeah, I don't know. Someone should build this because you could do it because all of our podcast feeds are open sourced. And you should make it so I can plug Andy Hacker's comments into it. Because it's my pet peeve mm. is it's so hard running a podcast to get any sort of feedback at all from listeners. Ugh. And so if I could like plug like the Indie Hackers forum into it and we could just get comments directly on our episodes while people are listening from their player, like that would be sick. I would pay for that podcast player in a second. I 100% agree. It's so frustrating that all podcast conversation happens on Twitter, basically, which is Pretty a much. terrible format for it. And it just it doesn't make any sense. But there's not, not really a good option aside from that. And the problem is that you listen to podcasts 
usually like in a very particular context, like you're in your car driving somewhere or you're walking somewhere or you're like doing chores around the house. Like the reason you're listening to something on audio is because like, you know, your eyes are preoccupied and your hands are preoccupied, but like you still have your ears and your brain available to you. And I think you use Twitter in a very different mode Mm -hmm. where you're like distracted, you know, you're kind of bored or like you're sitting at your computer or you're on your phone, like looking at your screen. And so it doesn't overlap. So like the podcast conversation that happens on Twitter happens when like people have already listened to the episode like a few days ago or a few weeks ago or something. It'd be really nice if there was a way where these podcast players would like encourage people to actually interact while they're listening or like, you know, like just after they listen. And it doesn't really exist yet. But um, let's talk about your show. Your show is called Startup to Last. I mentioned it at the top of the show, how you're building less annoying CRM to basically last for decades. Is that what you talk about on your show? Yes and no. Uh, that, that topic gets dry pretty quickly. So it's more, how do you run a business with, with that kind of in the background? So we're still talking about normal, you know, how do you do marketing? How do you, it's, it's just my friend Rick and I helping each other through business problems. But the answer, so the questions I think are the same as any other startup podcast, but the answers are different if the goal is to last for 20, 30 years versus, you know, get acquired five years from now. Which is a goal I think, you know, I hope more people strive for. On the internet, we kind of measure businesses in terms of months or years. Uh, like I was just listening to Ben Ornstein on the Run With It podcast. They're also on the network. And I think they called his his, his uh, product Tuple kind of like the old guard. And it's only been around for two years. <laughs> and only on the internet do people uh, <laughs> refer to businesses that way. But I think yours, I mean, you sort of like put your money where your mouth is. You got the experience. You've been building less annoying CRM for 10 years, 11 maybe. And Rick... Uh, sort of co-host on the podcast. He's got like kind of a brand new thing where he's like just now kind of getting into it. How long has he been working on his product? Basically this year. So going on one year now. Yeah, it's a cool juxtaposition where like you're sort of, you know, dispensing wisdom from the top of the star, the Indie Hackers Mountain. And he's like (laughs) kind of climbing up the mountain himself, but like, you know, learning a lot of different things because I'm sure building a business today is like very different than it was when you built yours. Yeah, it, it really is. And after you've been doing it for 11 years, it's also, it's fun in both directions. Like maybe I have a little wisdom, but it's easy to like get complacent and lose a little bit of hunger. So it's great to hear the other side of it and be like, oh yeah, I should probably be moving faster, huh? What's your, your favorite episode of your show so far? My favorite episode of the show. The one that got the best reviews was when Rick wanted to learn how to code. And I just told him how I would self-teach, although that's probably not representative of uh, what the normal episodes are. I, I got to be honest, one does not stand out to me, but recently, because you've been giving us a lot of feedback, I, we've been talking more about kind of trends and topics that are uh, not necessarily just what we're working on in our business, but kind of zooming out and saying like, what's going on in the startup landscape? And I, I've been having a lot of fun with that because if you it's important. Like entrepreneurs should be thinking big picture, but it's really easy to get bogged down in the day to day and forget to think about that stuff. Yeah. I like the one you did recently on the topic of community fatigue because it, like, it mm-hmm. kind of had me like screaming at my phone <laughs> because I was like, I wanted to jump in and talk, but it's a podcast, so I just have to listen. But you're talking about how uh, <laughs> there's just so many startup communities, right? Twitter itself is a community and has a bunch of different sub communities. Indie Hackers is a community. There's a million other Slack groups and Discord groups and Telegram groups and uh, little communities you can belong to as a founder. And in the same way we have like the subscription fatigue, we have community fatigue. And so the two of you were talking mm-hmm. about like, what your thoughts are, were on it. And I just wanted to jump in. Now you're here, I can actually say it. Like my thought was, uh, I think about communities almost exactly the same way I think about offline communities. Online and offline are kind of the same. And I think the answer is like, you don't have to belong to all of them, right? You don't go to like every single barbecue mm-hmm. that's ever been thrown. You just go to kind of like <laughs> the barbecue with like the friends that you want to hang out with. 
And I think the same thing is true with like the community stuff. And I feel the same way about newsletters. You know, there's like newsletter subscription fatigue. How can you subscribe to all of them? And it's like the answer is you don't have to. You know, you just read the ones that you like. And uh, I think that's kind of what makes it possible for so many indie hackers to succeed, which is that none of these communities and none of these newsletters or whatever are like kind of winner take all, right? Like all of them kind of have a small group of subscribers or readers or community members. And even if they only grow to like 100 or 1,000 or 10,000 or something, that's enough for their founders to make like a really good living. And there can be a million other newsletters and communities and, and things work out. I buy that. But my pushback would be, I think a lot of people running these communities aren't thinking about it that way. No um, way. Andy like Hackers the, the is going to be the biggest thing ever. It's going to be winner take all. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it, it's funny talking to you about it because Indie Hackers is the winner in in a niche, but there's nothing bigger than Indie Hackers targeting this kind of bootstrap. I mean, indie, you, you basically invented the term, yeah. right? So I think you have, the problem is everyone else is trying to start Indie Hackers part two. And it's like, there's only going to be one Indie Hackers. There's only one Hacker News. I love what you're saying about it could be like a barbecue, it could be 10 or 20 or 30 people. Those have been my favorite communities I've ever been a part of. But there's not like a business there. And when people are trying to start a business built around a community, it has yeah. to get bigger than that, I think. Yeah, that, that's very true. You've got to get bigger than 10 people to make this work. But I think some people are doing it. Like there's Weekend Club. They are based out of London. I think they do like Saturday co-working sessions. And it's like 50, 60 bucks a month. And if you charge that kind of price for a group of indie hackers to get together, like you only really need 100 or 200 people for you to make a living off of a group like that. And it's probably not like a 40-hour-a-week job for you. It's probably like pretty easy to run something like that. And uh, there could be lots of those, you know, lots and lots of those. And they're still like at the level where it's still kind of a, you know, there's a personal connection there where people can know each other. And I think, you know, probably some people will be doing this with an eye towards killing indie hackers and making like, the next <laughs> big indie community. But I, I think I'll probably be okay. I think I've got some really good... Uh, network effects going in my favor. Okay, well, that looks like pretty much everything on our list. I think it is, yeah. Cool. Well, thanks for doing this co-hosted episode with me. Hopefully, we'll have you on again if you're uh, if you're up for it. Where can people find you and your podcast, Tyler? Yeah, so I am Tyler M. King on Twitter. The podcast is uh, Startup to Last on Twitter or www.startuptolast.com. Uh, and my company is at lessannoyingcrm.com. All right, thanks again, Tyler. Yeah, thanks, Cortland. It was fun. Listeners, if you enjoyed this episode and you want an easy way to support the podcast, you should leave a review for us on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Probably the fastest way to get there if you're on a Mac is to visit IndieHackers.com slash reviews. I really appreciate your support and I read pretty much all the reviews you leave over there. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, I will see you next time. <laughs>